Thank you, Elizabeth. As she was playing, I chuckled to myself a little bit because I looked down at the title of the sermon in the bulletin, and for our young people that haven't been to college and who are fluent in text speech, it's not church membership lol, it is church membership 101, which is a reference to an introductory course in college that you take. So I'm glad I could clear that, clear that up for you. I think it's worthy uh, for ser- several reasons for us to ask some basic questions. What is the church? Is the church merely a collection of people with shared interest in spiritual things, like a social club or a hobby group? Is it a group of people who couldn't make it on their own, and so they collectively pool their strengths and their resources to cope with life in this hard world? Is membership in a local church an optional benefit, or is it expected? Does the Bible expect it? Can a faithful Christian not be connected to a local expression of Christ's body, a local church? The text to which I'd like us to turn our attention this morning is Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Please turn with me there if you have your Bibles. We've been working our way recently, quite slowly, through 1 Corinthians, and I thought it prudent to take a brief pause from that study to preach a doctrinal and practical sermon on the topic of church membership. And there are a couple of reasons for that, that I think that both I and the, I and the elders think it's wise to examine the doctrine of church membership. First of all, because at this point in our study of 1 Corinthians, Paul is assuming a robust understanding of church membership. We're about to enter chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and Lord willing, next time we get together, we'll see where Paul tackles head-on an issue that involves church discipline. That is, a member of the Corinthian church is in public and terrible sin, and they're even proud of it. And Paul directs the Corinthian church to put that man out, to hand him over to Satan, Paul says, which means to excommunicate him. But to do such a thing, to put a man out assumes something very significant. It assumes that there was first a way to be in. To put someone outside of the box assumes that there was a box to begin with. To be removed implies that you were first brought in. Thus, Paul's whole argument in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians assumes an understanding of church membership, and therefore I thought it prudent for us to see what the Bible says about the body of Christ and how Christians in local churches are to relate to one another. But there's another reason why I thought it wise to remind ourselves of what it means to be a member of Christ's body. And that reason is the global pandemic that we just endured. Many people and many churches have a very malleable understanding of what church is. Indeed, a very minimalistic understanding of church membership. And they and their churches are not faring very well after this quarantine time. People with thin views of church membership that don't prioritize relationships and connections in the body are coming out of COVID and they're asking themselves, do I really need to go to church at all? If church membership is merely about access to preaching, then why do I need to gather with a local body? I can pull up a sermon on TV and I can watch it in my pajamas from my couch. In fact, I can hear a better sermon than the one that's about to be preached at my church. The best sermons in the world, I can stream those every week. Why do I even need to go? And so both the biblical understanding of church membership and the immediate relevance of our past global experience both press upon us the importance of these questions. What is the church? 
How are believers to relate to the church and thus to one another? And so I hope this morning to give us a little overview of what the Bible teaches, a brief doctrinal overview, so that we can have right in our mind what the Bible teaches, what Christ expects of us, what we owe to one another, having first been given life in Christ. And so let's look at Romans 12, which is one of the texts in the New Testament that describes the church in the language of a body with many members. Starting in verse 3, let's hear the word of our Lord. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, then in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in his generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would give us the strength and the faith to do what this text compels us to do. To love well. To contribute with generosity. To lead with zeal. To serve in acts of mercy with cheerfulness. To let our love be genuine and to hate what is evil. Clinging tightly to what is good. Let us, Lord, love one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor, and doing all this because of the grace that has been shown to us by Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My thesis, my goal this morning, is to show you that the New Testament expectation is for church members to be converted, to be consecrated, and to be connected. The New Testament expects that church members will be con converted consecrated and connected. So let's start with the first one. Church members are to be converted. Or the assumption of the New Testament is that all members of the church be genuine converts, genuine believers in Jesus Christ. This may seem like a no-brainer to you, and in one sense it ought to be. That's why I called the, church, uh, the sermon Church Membership 101, not 102. But as simple as this sounds, not everyone agrees with it. Some say that we baptize people into the church and they will eventually come to faith. They say that the church is necessarily and by design a corpus mixtum, a mixed body, full by design of believers and unbelievers. But I do not believe the Bible teaches this and Baptists have never believed that the Bible teaches this. Let's look at a few reasons why churches should be full of a membership of regenerated or converted believers. It should have a regenerate church membership. The first is found in the very name, church, which in Greek is ekklesia. It means assembly, or we could say it quite literally, those that have been called out. The very notion of church in its name presupposes that those members have first responded to a call to a gospel call. 
The imagery that we will study later this morning about the church being the household of God assumes that all the members of the church are actually part of God's family. Further, the language of the New Testament assumes that churches are full of believers. Think back to the beginning of our study in 1 Corinthians. Paul addresses his letter to the church in Corinth, and he says, quote, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Paul is assuming when he's writing to the church in Corinth that he's writing to a gathering of believers. Secondly, we should conclude that churches should be made up of converts because of what we see in the New Testament about church discipline. If the church was intentionally designed to be a collection of believers and unbelievers, church discipline makes no sense at all. Why would you possess a mechanism for removing unbelievers if unbelievers are permitted to be in membership from the beginning? It makes no logical sense. Third, we should conclude that churches should be made up of converts because of the example of the early church, particularly what we see in the book of Acts. After Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, we see that those who were added to the church were those who explicitly accepted Peter's message or his word, his sermon of the gospel truth. We see that in Acts 2.41. And then in verse 47, we see those who were being saved were added to their number. The church was growing because more people were being converted, not because more unbelievers were being added to the roster. Likewise, in Acts 11, we see that the church of God in Antioch, Antioch was growing. And verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Belief precedes baptism, precedes membership. That was Paul's ordinary methodology. He would enter a city, he would preach the gospel, he would take those who responded to the gospel preaching with faith, and he would organize them into a church. It happened in chapter 14. It happened in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And all of this work by Paul, all of his efforts, all of his tactics operate with the assumption of a regenerate church membership. He assumes that the church will be full of converts and not pagans. But you may be asking yourself, is this, is this really such a big deal? Do we really need to put so much effort in examining someone's testimony and investigating the credibility of his or her confession? Well, absolutely. Let's think about some of the dangers if we ignore the Bible's teaching and the Bible's example when it comes to having a regenerate church membership. One danger is of having unbelievers in the church's membership is that the name of Christ is tarnished in the eyes of the world. The name of Christ, the reputation of our Savior is sullied whenever we have unbelievers representing the name of Christ in the world. We have a hard enough time as believers trying to live in a manner worthy of the name of Christ, but when you have unregenerate church members living in the world in an ungodly way, while outwardly representing the name of Christ, we're preaching a confusing and damnable message. We're telling the world that you can act like a complete pagan and still be okay with God. You can remain in your unbelief and yet be at peace with God. We're preaching a message that says peace with God and peace with the world are reconcilable, which is an absolute lie. It's the opposite of what Scripture teaches. God cares about how we behave. He cares about our works being either righteous or sinful. God cares about how His people represent His name to the world. And when we fill the church with unbelievers, then we will inevitably profane the name of Christ to a watching world. 
But that's not the only danger. Another danger of having an unregenerate church membership is that the church goes completely haywire. The orderliness of the church goes out the window. Let me explain what I mean. I'm assuming here that the Bible teaches a congregational form of church order. That is, the congregation is the highest earthly authority in the church. It's not the pope. It's not the bishop. It's not the pastors. It's not the deacons. It's the congregation. That's why when Jesus gets to the last step of church discipline in Matthew 18, he says, tell it to the church. When the apostles institute deacons in Acts chapter 6, he says to the church, not that the apostles will pick the deacons. He says, you choose from among you men of good repute and have them serve in this way. The church handles matters of discipline and membership and leadership. But the danger comes when you have a congregation full of unbelievers voting and ruling within the church. Churches tear themselves apart all the time because they fail to disciple, fail to teach, and fail to discipline out unbelievers. And when some controversy comes, they're shocked to find that the church is full of people acting like pagans. If you have a church that's operating properly, you have a congregation full of the Holy Spirit, full of people acting like what we read in in Romans 12, full of love and unity and humility, then there's peace and unity when it comes to voting matters in the church. But if you have unbelievers in church membership, then we can't be shocked if the ship gets sideways. You're asking unbelievers who necessarily lack the Holy Spirit to vote on spiritual matters. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Paul assumes, and the New Testament makes clear, that the church is to be made up of converts, made up of believers. People have heard the gospel, responded in faith, and submitted themselves to baptism. Which leads to my second point. Church members are to be consecrated. Church members, according to the New Testament expectation, are consecrated. And this consecration takes place both inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, it happens at the moment of conversion. God so works in the heart of His chosen people to give them the gift of life. He grants them the ability to hear His call, to turn from their sins, to trust in Christ as the only means of their salvation. And once they respond, Christ seals them with His Holy Spirit. He sets them apart. He makes them one with Himself and also with His bride. And this is what leads towards the outward expression of this consecration, which is baptism. Baptism is an outward picture of our being consecrated, of our being set apart unto Christ. You can remember back to Acts chapter 2 again. God in His providence has thousands of Jews from every nation gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out. Men begin preaching, preaching in all the various native tongues of those gathered Jews. And one of those men is Peter, who boldly preaches to the crowd. And he says at one point, God made this Jesus, whom you, Jews, all crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And rather than that crowd seeking to kill Peter for such an inflammatory statement, the very next verse says that they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they even said, Peter, what do we need to do? And he says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter tells them that they should turn from their sins, that they should trust in this crucified Messiah, and they should then publicly identify themselves with the people of God by being baptized. 
How did they respond? Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The church from the beginning was full of people that were consecrated internally by the cutting to the heart of the Holy Spirit and then consecrated externally through baptism. And as Baptists, we of all people should make sure we have an understanding of what's being pictured in this outward consecration, in this outward ceremony of washing that pictures an inward reality of our being washed. Most evidently, baptism is a picture of us being washed of the guilt of our sins. Peter preached, come and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Not as if the water has anything magical about it, but the ordinance of baptism is a glorious picture of what happens when we come to faith. Christ's death on the cross and His burial in the grave is pictured when we go under the water. We are united to Him in His death, Scripture says. And so our sin is carried to the grave, under the water. All the guilt, all the penalty, all the liability that we incurred because of our sin, it's all buried. It's buried in the grave. Likewise, when we rise from the baptismal waters, we're picturing that we've been united to Christ in His resurrection. His new life is ours in the Spirit. His physical resurrection with a new glorified body will likewise be ours to experience one day as well. His purity, His righteousness is likewise robed around us because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But lest we think that this salvation pictured in baptism is merely an individual reality, baptism also reminds us that God is concerned with more than just me and you as individuals. He's concerned about a bride, collectively. Have you ever considered this, the communal aspect of your baptism? Ask yourself this, why do you think of all the possible ceremonies that God could have used to institute for His church to observe, why do you think He chose baptism? He could have chose hand-washing. He didn't do that. He chose baptism. I think one of the reasons is to teach us something is to teach us in the picture of baptism that no single Christian can baptize himself. It takes another. Jesus needed John the Baptist to baptize him. We need another person even to perform the very first act of obedience in the Christian life, which is a beautiful reminder of the reality being pictured in baptism itself. We need someone else to save us. Just like we can't lift ourselves out of the waters of baptism, so too are we powerless to save ourselves from the sentence of death which our sin had earned for us. That's the very heart of the gospel. All of mankind has been plunged into a world of death and sin and the curse because of rebellion against God and against His holy law. We think in our pride that we're, we're doing pretty good. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not that bad. But God's law leaves us with the inescapable conclusion that we are indeed condemned. Yes, we may not have murdered someone with our hands, but we've certainly murdered them with our hateful words. Sure, we may not have committed actual adultery, but we've looked longingly at someone other than our spouse. We may not have stolen somebody's stuff or their car, but we've certainly coveted what belonged to someone else and been discontent with what God has given us. Regardless of the seeming severity of each of our transgressions, each of us is nonetheless a transgressor. And the penalty of sin is death. Even the slightest sin, Scripture says. That's what we've earned apart from Christ. 
But the good news of God is that death no longer has dominion. Another has come. Another has defeated sin and death. And that other is Jesus. Jesus is the man that was born under the law, Scripture says, fully bearing the weight of God's moral standard. And he didn't buckle under that weight. He never murdered or spoke murderously. In fact, he himself was so far from murderous hatred that he's described as the very source and fountain of life. And all of those who unite with him become partakers of his very divine life. Further, Jesus never once lusted. In fact, he was the most faithful bridegroom to ever live. He did everything necessary for the purity and the protection of his bride. He even gave up his own life for his bride that she might have life instead. And Jesus never once coveted. He never once was discontent. Even though he was put through terrible injustice and he suffered much affliction at the hands of sinful men, Christ continued trusting himself to the God who judges justly, Scripture says. And he rested contently in the providential plan of his Father, never once coveting the path of another man, but remaining faithfully committed to the path laid out for him. And this righteousness can be yours too. All you must do is believe in this simple message that Christ died in the place of sinners. Believe in this Christ and repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Turn from your sins and He will unite with you and grant you the strength you need to follow in the path of righteousness and to unite with other believers as part of the church, His very bride. Entrance into the church is astonishingly simple. And yet it is powerfully encompassing. There's no part of your life that will not be changed once you embrace the gospel by faith and you've been consecrated to service unto Christ. Have you trusted in this Jesus? Are you converted and consecrated? And if you are, then rejoice in all that is pictured in your baptism. Remember afresh how you are buried with Christ in His death. You are no longer fearful of the punishment that had been earned because of your sins. Christ has carried the consequences and buried the burden of your sin. You no longer have to live in fear about being found out as a terrible sinner. You no longer have to dread punishment or live in anxiety about not measuring up. Christ has done it for you and His work is enough. Walk in that strength. In the power of His might, Paul says in Ephesians 6. And as you walk with His people, who also have been consecrated to the same path. But if you have not trusted in Christ, if you're not converted and trusting in the gospel, then know that what is pictured in the gospel is also a visible reminder of you, but of a very different reality. You too will enter the grave one day, but you will enter it alone. You will have no substitute to take death from you. And you too will be raised one day, but it will not be in Christ's strength. And it will not be with Christ as your advocate. You will be raised on the final day to face the final judgment. And you will stand before God with all of your sin and your pride. And you will be judged for rejecting the offer of salvation presented to you in Scripture and presented to you today. Do not let that be your faith. Trust in Christ this day and be converted through His good news. Be consecrated inwardly by the Holy Spirit and then externally through baptism. And then you can experience true communion, both with Christ and with His bride. And it's that communion with Christ's bride that leads to my final point. 
We've seen that church members are converted and consecrated. Now let's look and see that church members are connected. The New Testament expectation is that church members are connected. You could look at this through a number of different angles in Scripture. And so we can look, for example, at the imagery used to describe the people of God in the New Testament. Most recently, in 1 Corinthians, we've looked at the theme of the church as a building or as a structure. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the church as having the foundation of Christ and Christ alone. And then on that foundation, Paul has been laboring to build a faithful structure according to the master architect who is God. He even sharpens the metaphor by calling the church the temple of God. Each of us is being placed as living stones in the heavenly construction project of a temple, which is the dwelling place fit for the presence of God himself. A second metaphor God uses in Scripture to describe his people is that of a family or a household. For example, 1 Timothy 3, 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, and I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how the people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Similarly, when Paul speaks of the qualifications of church leaders, one of the qualifications of the candidate is that he ought to manage his household well. And the rationale is significant. Paul says if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church? The implication is that these two spheres are sufficiently similar in their ordering and their structure, that competency in one area ought to produce competency in the other. A man that can manage his earthly household well ought to be competent to manage well the spiritual household, which is the church. Thirdly, the New Testament not only speaks of the church as a building and a household, it also speaks of the church as a body. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans uh, 12 as well. Verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though we are many, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. It's similar to what he says in Ephesians 4. And God gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. The church is a building, a family or a household, and a body. And these metaphors are instructive for us in several ways. First, each of these metaphors imply connection, not isolation. They each imply connection and not isolation. In the same way that a single stone is not a building, and a single man is not a father, and an arm is not a body, so too is an isolated, disconnected Christian less than the biblical ideal. I'm not talking, of course, about people providentially hindered from connection like those that are homebound or on the foreign mission field, but those of us who, perhaps because we like our privacy, we like our independence, we like our distance, these metaphors ought to challenge us. I heard an analogy years ago about a pastor who had been working the grill at a church picnic. He had a church member come up to him at the grill, a church member who had been kind of drifting in his church involvement. And that church member began to talk about how he was struggling and he really felt disconnected and he, he couldn't plug in anywhere. And the pastor at that point, he took his tongs and pulled a piece of charcoal and he set it off by itself. The man thought that was a little strange, but he kept talking. 
And when the, when the man, the church member, finally finished talking to the pastor, he kind of said, what did you do that for? And the pastor pointed out to the man that while that piece of charcoal was in the fire, it was glowing red hot. But when you take it and you place it off by itself, it slowly cools until it is no longer useful for its intended purpose. And the pastor was reminding the man, and he's reminding all of us, that Christians are called to be part of a body that is connected, that is united, rather than drifting, being distant and cold. And we need to be reminded of that because none of us drifts naturally into deeper church commitment. If we drift anywhere, we drift towards further isolation, towards further away from meaningful spiritual connections. And these metaphors in the New Testament imply for us deep connection rather than isolation. Secondly, these metaphors imply order and structure. These metaphors about the church in the New Testament imply order and structure. You can't build a building without a plan and without a team and without a leader. Likewise, you don't have a household without a specific family. I can't just pull up to the playground over here and open the door to the car and take the first four kids that show up. Well, I couldn't do that without getting arrested. I have to have my kids, not just anybody's kids. Likewise, a body, you can't have a body that's not ordered and working according to its proper structure. In fact, when a body isn't working according to its proper order and structure, we say it's broken or malfunctioning. If you took my arm and you put it on my office desk down the hall, no matter how wonderful of a specimen of of an arm that is, you would not say my body is operating according to its intended design and function. It was designed to uh, to operate with a particular order and and structure. And that's exactly what we see in the church. God designed the church to be ordered according to His plans. Pastors have their jobs. Deacons have their jobs. Each church member has their job. Men have their roles. Women have their roles. Children have their roles. It's defined. It's ordered. It's it's structured. And these structures are something that the world is working against at the moment. Everything in the current structure is seeking to undermine institutions and to bring about the demise of any sort of authority structure. Don't trust the politicians. They're all dishonest. Don't trust the clergy. They're all abusive. Don't trust your history books. They've all been redacted. Don't trust your parents. They're all trying to keep you from being your authentic you, what you really are. But God's Word confronts all that and says that godly order and godly structure is a good thing. When the church is operating according to God's purposes, you will have flourishing because because the building is built according to God's plan. The house is operating according to its proper form. And the body is functioning according to its intended design. The metaphors of the church imply order and structure. Third, each of these metaphors implies commitment. They imply commitment. God's design is that we would commit to one another, that we would know one another, that we would be in relationship with one another. That's partly what's behind Romans 12.5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. We're members of one another. To go back to the metaphors... Two stones near one another are not a building, nor is a whole pile of bricks a building. You need mortar to bind them together. Similarly, two people living together does not a marriage make. You must have commitment. You need a covenant. 
Likewise, a pile of bones doesn't make a body. You need connections. You need muscles. You need sinew. You need to tie these things together to have a body. I don't think we're stretching the metaphors too far to say that an uncommitted Christian does not make a church member, nor does a gathering of Christians automatically make it a church. They're not a church. They're not a local assembly until they have committed to one another. We're not designed to operate independently. I've had conversations with people who affirm almost everything about this sermon and about what the New Testament says about the church, but they don't see church membership in the New Testament. And I'm sympathetic to their position in a real way. They want to be doggedly scriptural. They want scripture to be their guide. They don't want to go beyond that. But I pose to them this question. If you're called to submit to your biblical elders, which this person would agree is Hebrews 13, 17 and other places, if you're called to submit to them, then how are you in any way obeying that text if you're not willing to submit to the first thing they ask you to do, which is a basic membership process? In what way are you honoring the commandment to submit to your elders if you're unwilling to submit to covenanting with the body? They can't answer the question, not in a consistent way. And so I mention that story only to illustrate that commitment is necessary. It will look different at different churches. Some have classes, some have public baptism service, some have printed membership rosters. The necessary point is commitment. Without commitment, church discipline is meaningless. Without commitment, the biblical imperatives of how we're to treat one another become very thin. Without commitment, each of us will be tempted just to pack up our bags and head out every time there's something that we don't like in the church. We each need to be committed to helping one another in the Christian life. We need to be committed to the hard work of loving well, of serving well, of rebuking if necessary when each of us gets a little out of sorts, which we're all prone to do. We are each members of one another, Paul says. And so do you have this kind of commitment to the people of God? Are you committed to the growth and health of your fellow church members, even when things get a little unpleasant or even difficult? Or are you tempted to, to drift? Are you the cold piece of charcoal over off to the side? Do you pack up and move on to the next church whenever something you don't like happens? Praise be to God that Christ's commitment to us is not like our commitment to the church. Christ is faithful in the good times and the bad. Christ never flees us when hard work is necessary. He leans in. Christ doesn't neglect His duties or fail to love those who are hard to love, like me and like you. I'll close with this exhortation. If you're trusting in Christ, then warm your heart again by reminding yourself of Christ's commitment to you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He has vowed, he has bound himself by a covenant to his bride that will last forever. And he has promised good to his bride. Good even at the cost of his very own life. And if you have not yet come to Christ, then come to him this day. And you too can taste of that true communion with him and with his people. The church is certainly not a perfect place. In fact, it's full of sinners. But unlike any other worldly group, we admit that we're sinners. And that status of being a sinner is the thing that makes us prime candidates to receive Christ's glorious grace. May each of us trust in Christ, be converted, be consecrated by the Holy Spirit and through baptism, and be connected to His body, which is the church. Amen. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Christ, who through his work has made it so that we can be converted. We can be united to him by faith and united to his bride. Help us to be faithful members. Help us to love Christ well, and by loving him well, love our neighbors well, especially our neighbors in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close by singing hymn 346, The Church's One Foundation. <laughs>